0: Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. Welcome to Horizon West Church. Uh, Those that are on campus also want to welcome those watching online uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover, so we're just going to jump right in. Uh, Nehemiah, we have, if you've been with us the last several weeks, we've been in uh, the book of Nehemiah. Uh, this would actually be week 10. We concluded the uh, the actual book study in chapter 13 last week, and uh, and, and I want to pull a thread that runs through the book of Nehemiah that we never got a chance to really do a deep dive on, and I, I felt the Lord's leading to to just do that tonight before we move on from the story of Nehemiah, because there is something that happens again and again and again and again and again in the life of Nehemiah as he's taken on this, this call of God to build the wall in Jerusalem. And, uh, and that thread that runs through the story of Nehemiah is prayer. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at seven uh, prayers that Nehemiah prays over the um, story of Nehemiah. And it's actually 11 prayers he prays, but there's seven unique prayers. And we're going to look at each of those tonight. And here's my hope. My hope is that in looking at these seven prayers, that one or two of these, you latch onto and go, this is a prayer I need to start praying in my own life, for whatever that is, and you'll see what those are in just a moment. And at the end of the message, I want to invite you to join us on a 21-day prayer journey that's going to lead us into Easter. So starting tomorrow, we're going to be as a church on a prayer journey, and whether it's your first time or, or you've been with us since the start, uh, we want to invite you to join us in this prayer journey, both online and in the room. So let's go to Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 4. Um, You're not going to, if you don't know the story of Nehemiah, I'm not going to take the time. I tried in our earlier service to go, okay here's what's going on as we dive in, but I think the verses themselves will clue you into kind of what's transpiring even if you haven't been here uh, over the course of the study. So Seven prayers. Here's the first one, Nehemiah chapter one, verse four. This one does need some context. Nehemiah is serving the king in Susa, which is the capital of the Persian empire. He hears that his homeland, the city of Jerusalem, is in absolute shambles. And this is what happens, Nehemiah 1, 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The first of the seven prayers in the book of Nehemiah is the prayer of lament. Now, if that word is unfamiliar to you, I'm going to tell you what that means in just a moment. But if you've been with us for a while, you know that there were two occasions where at Horizon West Church, we set aside an entire worship service for lament. Uh, to, to, to mourn, to recognize the hurt and the pain that was going on in our lives. One of those was while we were still in the middle school. You heard Justin mention that uh, earlier, Sunridge Middle School. And you might remember if you were there, but we laid out cheerleading mats uh, on the cafeteria floor. And as we talked about, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted, we invited people to come and just mourn and receive God's comfort in their lives. There were tears, there was healing, and there was reconciliation. And then uh, when we got back to meeting in person after six months of not being able to do that, we said, you know what, before we just dive back into services like it's nothing or normal, Uh, Let's take time to recognize that these last six months have been hard. Uh, We lost two, at least two, maybe more, two members of this congregation um, before their time, if you will. Uh, Obviously, God's, you know, our lives are in his hands. But uh, two members of our congregation, one in his 30s, one in his 40s. and, and And in addition to that, there was health trauma, there was marriage struggles. And we went, let's pause and let's just take time to weep, time to lament In the prayer of lament, we're not asking God for anything. We're simply bearing our souls to him in grief. I I might refer to the prayer of lament as grieving with God. It's when we grieve and we bring God into the center of our grief. Uh, Two verses from the book of Psalms, Psalm 56 verse 8 says this, You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? David is saying, God, you know the tears I've cried. You know, and you remember my grief. And then Psalm 34, 18, David again, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. So, so our, our tears, our grief doesn't scare God away. In fact, scripture teaches that God draws near in our tears. So in lament, we're just inviting God into the place of our grief. We're bearing our soul to him. And actually, this was a very common thing that happened in Scripture. David, these are two examples from his life. He did it many times in the book of Psalms. Uh, We also have the examples of Moses uh, being a person of lament. Jeremiah, in fact, Jeremiah is the author of a book called Lamentations. It's It's one of the 66 books of the Bible. And then we also have Elijah, and it may surprise you to hear even Jesus himself prayed prayers of lament. One uh, distinct one is Psalm 20, uh, or rather Matthew 23 verse 37. He says this, "O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing?" Now he's not rebuking the city so much as he is just lamenting the fact that the people of Jerusalem had not accepted him as the Messiah. Now as I talk about the prayer of lament, one of the things I recognize is that the American church is not very good at prayer of lament. Would you agree with that? Can I get like a head nod? Like we're just not really accustomed to, to, to grief and mourning and bringing that into public. There are cultures where that's very normal. There are cultures where when somebody dies, they don't come out of their house for months or they wear black for a year or they, they, they have symbolism, cultural symbolism to tap into. We don't do so well with it. I thought of a few reasons that may be possible. One, as one of the wealthiest nations in the history of the world, and maybe the wealthiest, we're kind of accustomed to things being relatively good. We have a high life expectancy. We have medicine and, and good hospitals. When we, you know, and for much of us, for much of our lives, we've not really had to tap into deep and profound grief like in other places in the world. It may also be. Uh, that we are not good at emotional honesty. Now, wives, this is where you nudge your, your husband, girls, uh, your, your boyfriends. You know, we're just not, we're not good at it. We, we were taught, some of us, in our homes or maybe in our religious cultures to mask negative emotions, to hide them. I'll give you an example. I remember when I was younger, one of my brothers, and there were many of them, uh, one of them I can distinctly remember was in an interaction with my dad, and he's weeping. And my dad is requiring him to say the words, I'm a happy boy. So picture a six-year-old through tears saying, I'm a happy boy. And we laugh, but the truth is some of us, because of our upbringing, or we we thought, man, if I go to church, I got to just sing the songs. And yeah, God is good. Good to see you, brother. Like everything is well. And the truth is, sometimes we need to be emotionally honest and just recognize that things Are not well in our soul. Uh, The other possibility is that we can tap into emotion, but there's one emotion that's kind of become the bully on the block. For some reason, in our culture today, the anger emotion is ruling the day. And it's my personal belief that that in some instances, we're looking at things that should cause us, like Nehemiah, to weep and to grieve, but we don't know how to tap into that, so we just get angry. Now, there's going to be a time for anger. Nehemiah will get there, but his immediate response is to lament. Things are not as they should be. The the city of God is in ruins, and he stops and takes the time to weep over it. Let me ask you this question. Is there something in your life about which you need to bear your soul to God and lament? Something in your personal life, something in your family, in this church, in your neighborhood, or in the nation where you just need to stop and say, God, God, I'm hurting over this. I'm I'm broken over this. I'm shattered over what is going on. Notice that in verse four, it says that Nehemiah not only wept, but he also fasted. And this is gonna be a clue to us for where Nehemiah is going. Uh, Nehemiah is gonna fast because initially it's not about doing something. He he doesn't initially start planning or saying God change the circumstances. He starts with lament. But in fasting, he's giving us a clue that he's about to ask God for something. He's about to press into God. And this is his second prayer, Nehemiah 1 verses 5 and 6. And so I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive to and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you even I and my father's house have sinned Nehemiah's second prayer is going to be a prayer of confession and repentance Now here's the difference between these two the prayer of lament is passive and it can arise for any number of reasons the death in the family or the state of our country or whatever it might be where we lament but the prayer of confession and repentance is different This is actively moving toward God to change something and it arises for one reason, sin. It's the recognition that there is sin in our own life or in our tribe, our church, our nation, whatever it is, and we come to God in confession and repentance. See, Nehemiah recognized that even though he was lamenting the state of Jerusalem, he also knew why it was in the condition it was. So he's not blaming God. God, how could you do this to your people? Nehemiah recognized that the reason Jerusalem was in shambles was because the people of God had sinned. And the only way to get through that and to get that corrected is to come to God in confession and repentance. The the classic example of this in the Bible is Psalm 51. David has committed a grievous sin. He's been called out uh, by Nathan for it. In Psalm 51, 1 and 2, David writes these words. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Let let me give you a principle that relates to confession and repentance. And and the the idea is not mine, but I'm going to extend it. You cannot change what you are unwilling to confront. And my add-on is, or confess. Confess. I don't know about you, but but my personality is such that I would rather avoid conflict at all costs. Anybody else kind of head nod? You don't have to put your hand up high, but I know who you are, right? Okay, yeah? So I have to tell myself this over and over. You cannot change what you're unwilling to confront. It just so happens that In almost every situation I find myself, God has called me to lead. And even though it would be my preference to let somebody else lead, God said, you're going to lead. So guess what? When you lead, it's your job and it's your prob, right? Like you don't get to just say, hey, it's somebody, No, 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 this is, and Nehemiah is a leader. God's calling him out. So he's not only confessing his own sin, but he is actually taking responsibility even for the sins of the nation. How refreshing to see that in a leader. We live in a day and age where leadership says, uh, I'll take the credit, but it's somebody else's fault, right? So if it's going well, yeah, that's all me. If it's going poorly, that's somebody else. Nehemiah not only put his finger on his own sin and called it that, he even took responsibility for the sins of the entire nation. And the moment he did that, God was positioning him to be an agent of change. For the nation. So, this is what he's doing. Uh, um, I shared this earlier, and, and without going into too much detail, most of you know I've been pretty transparent from the pulpit about sin struggles that have plagued me over the years, and one in particular that, that for many, many years just would not leave. It was just stubbornly rooted in my heart. And I can remember as a teenager going, God, you got to take this sin away from me. You got you to help me overcome this temptation. You, you got to get me through this. I don't, I don't want this. Set me free of it. Have you ever been there and gone, man, why isn't God, it seems like that's a good prayer, right? Like, why doesn't God take that prayer and do something with it? And this is what I learned. There are some sins that will never be rooted out of your heart until you step into the light of confession. And and I don't even just mean confession to God. I had done that. I mean confession to another person. See, the surest way and often the only way that we can experience breakthrough in our lives, in our families, our marriage, our personal lives, is through confession and repentance. Do you know what I do now? Um, I, I, I'm not, I, I never graduated from the school of confession and repentance. I learned to do that, and then I learned it's a lifestyle. I learned it's something you have to do again and again. Because what your sin is going to do, it's going to look for dark places to hide, And what you're going to have to do, if you want to live the abundant life, if you want to follow Jesus and and experience a thriving spiritual life, you're going to have to keep bringing that sin into the light and naming it and going, here it is. And so now what I do is every Tuesday, and again every Thursday, I meet with people and we bring our stuff into the light. I meet, meet with other men, two different groups. And I do this regularly. And some weeks, thank God, I can show up and go, hey guys, not a lot to report, but I still show up important to show up. And then some weeks, there's things I need to confess in my marriage or in my head or or things that are in my life that need to come into the light. Confession and repentance. Go back to Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. At this point, Nehemiah has uh, been lamenting for about five months, we learn, and this is what happens. The king said to me, why is your face sad seeing as you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid and I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. The third of Nehemiah's prayers is a prayer for guidance. This is the humble recognition that we are dependent on God and that he alone is the source of all wisdom. I think everybody that follows after Jesus eventually gets to a place where you recognize this, right? I can't quite figure this out on my own. It may be that you're in the middle of something like this. You're going, I've looked at this from every possible angle. I've tried to untangle all the knots. I just can't quite figure it out. This is where the prayer for guidance comes in. Job was in such a situation, Job chapter 12, verse 13, when he said these words, with God are wisdom and might and he has counsel and understanding. If you know the story of Job, you know there was a lot going on around Job and in Job that he couldn't quite make sense of, but he knew who the source of wisdom was. He knew where to turn for guidance. And I love the way several weeks ago when Austin preached on this passage, Nehemiah chapter two, how he said that Nehemiah's months of prayer turned into a moment of prayer, right? Because all of a sudden the king is going to put him on the spot and say, hey, Nehemiah, what do you want? And Nehemiah doesn't have time to say, well, hold on. Let me go pray about it. He just has to answer, and so he, it says he prayed to the God of Heaven. He shot up what I would call a prayer of the moment. It's the moment when the job you've been praying for, you're now walking into an interview, and you're, you're saying, "God, I, I need wisdom. I need I need answers. I need I need to ace the interview, right?" Or 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 maybe you've been praying for the salvation of a friend or a neighbor or a coworker, and all of a sudden the conversation opens where you can take it there and you say, God, give me wisdom, give me words to say. Fortunately, Jesus promised his followers that when we are in situations where we need guidance and we need it immediately, he will give it. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 19 to 20, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Some of you are in a situation where you not only need guidance, you need it very quickly. And maybe you've been praying for months or weeks, but you also need to now pray in the moment, God, I need the wisdom, I need the guidance immediately. God is faithful to give it. Nehemiah chapter 4, let's see this fourth prayer that he prays. Nehemiah 4, 4 and 5 Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. This needs some explanation here. (laughs) Nehemiah has begun the great building project, but the nations around them are trying to stop it and they're threatening Nehemiah and he's gonna pray what I would call the prayer of vindication prayer of vindication. To vindicate, give you a little dictionary, uh, a little English lesson. To vindicate is to assert, maintain, or defend against opposition. But it shares a root word with the word vindictive, which is to be disposed or inclined to revenge or vengeful. So, So let's unpack something here. Because in the Old Testament, There were many prayers that were not only prayers of vindication, they were vindictive prayers. They were vengeful prayers. Here's one example from the life of David, Psalm 69. Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. I don't know what that means, but it does not sound good. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. David, this is no holds bar. David's like, God, go get them. Like, like, pour out your burning hot wrath on my enemies. Well, here's something you need to know that's interesting about David. Remember, he's old covenant. He, he lived before Jesus was incarnate in the flesh. David is continuously in the Psalms asking for God's mercy for himself and God's wrath on his enemies. That is vindictiveness. That's God, you go get them, but but don't come get me even though I too have sinned. The way of Jesus actually runs opposite to this. In Jesus at the cross, Jesus took the wrath of God on himself so that the mercy of God could be extended to his enemies. 2 Corinthians 5:21 says it beautifully, one of my favorite verses. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was the opposite of vindictive, right? You remember on the cross how he prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So vindictive prayers for the believer are, are a no-go. Jesus said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. So that's a no-go. So what is a prayer of vindication? Well, the prayer of vindication is upholding God's justice, which vindictive prayers do as well, but with a mind toward the good of those who are outside of his justice. Does that make sense? So in in the old covenant, it was, uh, God, your justice matters, therefore crush the people who are against you. The New Testament is, God, your justice matters, so reconcile those who are opposed to you. See, when you pray prayers of vindication, what you're praying is that the will of God will prevail and that those who oppose him will come to know him through faith, will be saved through the mercy of God and reconciled to him. That's a very different thing. And so prayers of vindication are appropriate. In fact, right now, I'm in a situation with some folks that uh, are not part of this church or this, even this community, um, but they've kind of set themselves up against some things I believe God wants to accomplish in his church. And, and, and it's, it's so clear to me what God wants to do. And, and these individuals are coming against it. And so I'm praying, God, let your will be done in spite of them. Uh, bring them under conviction. Uh, bring them to repentance. Let them see the error of their ways. Because I want and I believe God wants his will to prevail. But I also want these brothers to be reconciled. I, I, I'm not wishing ill upon them. Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter four, verses eight and nine. Read with me here. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Prayer number five is this, the prayer for protection. By the way, do you notice something that's a recurring theme in Nehemiah that the moment he faces adversity, he turns to God? Somehow or other, Nehemiah had trained himself It was like a trigger, like if adversity is coming, my immediate move is to turn to God. I don't know about you, but I'm not quite there yet. I I, I will sit in the confusion, I'll sit in the frustration, I'll sit in whatever it is, and it takes some time, but Nehemiah has trained himself. He knows when somebody's coming against me, I pray to God for protection. And there's this all-important and in the verse, if if you see it there. He says, He says, I prayed to God and what? And I set a guard against the enemies. (laughs) Right? He's he's not abdicating what is in his hands to do. He he's taking the necessary steps to protect, but he's also saying ultimately protection is in the hands of God. It's why every night I have a routine, I go to each of my kids' beds as they're going to sleep for the night, and I pray for them. And probably the prayer I pray most for them is for their protection. And then you know what I do? I go downstairs, I lock all the doors and set the alarm, (laughs) right? Because I'm recognizing there are things I can do as a dad to protect my home physically, but I also recognize the things I fear most for my children won't come through the doors. I can't keep them out with locks and alarms. The things I fear most for my children are destructive relationships, addictive habits, loss of faith. And I say, God, only you Only you can protect my children spiritually. One of the great tragedies in our nation is that there are parents who are providing every necessary thing for their child physically and abdicating their role to pray for the spiritual protection of their children. That's happening in churches. That's happening in believing homes. I would just say this, the most important thing you can do for your children is pray spiritual protection over them. One of the things as I think about God's protection that's tripped me up, and maybe it has you as well, is I've heard this expression, I've heard this phrase, the safest place to be is where? In the center of God's will. Anybody ever heard that before? Well, is that actually true? And I would say, "Eh, yes and no, because here's the reality. There are people going to the mission field, reaching unreached people groups with the gospel and getting their heads chopped off. Were they in the center of God's will? Yes, absolutely. Were they protected? Well, yes and no. There is no promise that if you follow after the Lord or that your children follow after the Lord, they're going to live to be 90 years old and have everything they ever need. Here's the good news. The greatest dangers that exist in the world for you or for your children have already been defeated by Jesus. Sin, the devil, and hell already defeated at the cross. And so when we say the safest place to be is in the center of God's will, we're recognizing that the greatest dangers and enemies that we face are not things that can kill us spiritually, or rather physically. They're things that can come against us spiritually. And so we seek God's protection, both in the physical, but more so in the spiritual realm. Nehemiah 5.19, number six, Nehemiah 5.19, the sixth prayer is this. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done, For this people. Now, at this point, Nehemiah is is getting ready to complete the building project. The the wall is going to be built around Jerusalem. He's reflecting on the things he's accomplished, and he's praying this he's praying a prayer for favor. Luke chapter 2, verse 52 tells us that when Jesus was growing up, this is what it says Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So along with prayers for protection, the other thing that I pray most for my children is this, I pray for God's favor to be on them. I pray for God's favor to be on them and it to be manifested not only in their relationship with him, but also with other people as it was with Jesus. And and there's two specific ways that are different that I pray favor for my children. One, I pray that God's unmerited favor would rest on them through salvation. That, that, that's the favor of God, grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, that they would have the favor of God through being reconciled to God through Jesus. That's not something they can earn. It's unmerited from God. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God so that no one can boast. But there's another kind of favor that I want for my children. And this is a favor that can only be cultivated as the result of faithfulness to God and his word. It doesn't determine their salvation, but I know if my children reject the word of God, if they live outside of it, if they, if they try to get in by the skin of their teeth, they're going to sacrifice favor that would be theirs. Galatians chapter 6, verse 8, Paul lays out this principle, the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. When I'm praying favor for my children, I'm praying that they will sow to the Spirit and not to the flesh. Now, the truth is all of us have probably planted seeds of both. uh, But I can tell you that in two areas specifically, one is financial and the other is sexual, I made decisions as a young person, God, I'm going to honor you in these two specific ways. And I have experienced God's favor as a result. It doesn't mean I'm more saved or less saved. It just means I've experienced more abundance in life because I've sought to live in the favor of God and in his faithfulness. Now, when we reflect on the old covenant, the Old Testament, we sometimes call it, there can be some confusion around this issue of the favor of God. When I was very young, I was convinced in my own mind that the way that people before Jesus, uh, before Jesus was incarnate the way they were saved is by doing good works. Has anybody ever believed that? Or maybe, okay. Did you know that that's not actually true? Uh, I'm going to establish that in just a second. So then I, I heard somebody, somebody taught me in church that the way that people were saved before Jesus came was that they looked forward to, and, and they saw Jesus on the cross prophetically and put their faith in him. And I went, that doesn't quite seem right. I have, there's no evidence of that in scripture. And now I've learned and believe that this is how people are saved. And this is Paul in Romans 4, 1 through 3. He's going to use Abraham as the example, right? Abraham, the first person that's walking with God. He says, What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul's going to make the case. That from the very first person to the very last person, everyone who is reconciled to God is reconciled the same way, by faith. It's not some new program. Now, the death of Jesus is a new revelation for us, and so we put our faith in Jesus for salvation. Abraham believed what God revealed, and it was credited to him him as righteousness. The favor of God came in that way. Nehemiah chapter 6 verse 9, last prayer that Nehemiah is going to pray in the scripture. He says, they all wanted to frighten us thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. I don't really know why, but this is my favorite prayer in the whole book of Nehemiah. And, and I think the reason that it's my favorite prayer is because I know my tendency, and maybe some of you would be honest enough to say your tendency, is when things get hard, you say, "God." change my circumstances. God, take this off me. God, God uh, get me out of this predicament. Nehemiah didn't pray those prayers. Nehemiah prayed a prayer for strength. He said, God, this is in my hands. This has been put on me. So give me the strength to endure it. A good workout partner understands that the thing to do when somebody is struggling under weight is not to lift it off of them immediately. Because in that tension is where you build muscle. Can I tell you that it's the same in the spiritual realm? It's the same when it comes to faith. God will allow us to experience things that are hard, things that are heavy, because he's trying to build our faith muscles. One example of this is 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. Paul says this, no temptation is overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful; He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I'm going to leave this up for just a minute here because there's two words that can be confusing in this passage. They sound like opposites. One is escape, and one is endure. This sounds like two different things, right? It's like God in temptation do you always give me a way of escape from it or do you give me a way to endure in it? And unfortunately, this is an example of the English translation not being super helpful. So let's go back to the original, to the Greek words. The word translated here as escape is the word ekbasis. And what it means, it has the connotation of something coming to the end. Now, the other word is well-translated, hupofero. That actually means to bear up under weight, But I would translate it this way, God provides us strength to endure to the end of temptation. Now, if there is a way to escape it, escape it. It is not wise or smart to go looking for temptation and go, okay, God, help me endure it. But when you face something that you cannot escape, when you go through a trial or a persistent temptation you cannot shake, God will give you strength to endure to the end of it. You know, the only reason we sin is because we stop believing that God has given us the strength to endure it. We go, okay, God, I can't do it anymore. I'm just, and and we fail to turn to God for the strength that would be there. Looking again at 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there's this all important phrase that, that Paul uses. He says, God is faithful. This could be the overarching theme of all of these seven prayers of Nehemiah. Nehemiah understood that God was faithful, that because God had called Nehemiah to build the wall, that he would have the guidance, he would have the strength, he would have the protection, he would have the favor that he needed to accomplish what God had put in his hands. Friends, if God has called you to it, he will give you strength to endure it. Some of you, that, you need to hear that because your marriage is in a hard place, and you're going, I don't know if we can make it another day or another week or another month, and I want to admonish you, I want to encourage you to turn to God for the strength that is there. As some of you are, are single or single again, and you're going, man, I don't like it. Well, at least for this season, God's called you to singleness. He can give you the strength to endure it until that season ends. Some of you are raising kids or you're doing a job that's hard, and, and you need to know that God has given you strength or can give you strength to endure the hard things He has called you to do. God is faithful. I told you at the beginning that we're going to embark as a church on a 21 day prayer journey that begins tomorrow. Um, and I want to invite you, if you're anything like me or the last week or two that I've had, that prayer for strength, that's where I'm living right now. <laughs> Y'all, I'm so tired. <laughs> I, I've, I've found myself nodding off as I'm driving. That, that's when you know you've like, you need to stop, you need to rest. And you also need to turn to the Lord for strength. And so that, that's where I'm going to camp out for these next 21 days. God, would you give me strength? Would you give me strength to continue overcoming temptation? Would you give me strength to continue leading your people? Horizon West Church, God, I need strength from you. I can't do this on my own. I want to invite you along with us over the next 21 days. Those 21 days are going to lead us up to Easter. And there's two ways that you can be involved, or, or two avenues through which you can come. One is if you go to uh, the, uh, on Facebook, go to Horizon West Church Behind the Scenes. Horizon West Church Behind the Scenes. This is where we're going to kind of camp out on this prayer journey, and we're going to post things and give you prompts to pray along with us. Um, you can also, if Facebook's not your thing and that's not your uh, mode of communication, you can text the word HW Prayer to 4077, and you'll get prompts over the next 21 days that will tell you just some things to be praying about to pray with us as we press in to the heart of God. I have come to the belief and the conviction that we work too hard and we show up too often to not ask God to do what only He can do through our church. We can set the stage, we can prepare sermons, we can open doors, we can hang out with kids, but It is God alone who moves hearts. It's God alone who builds his kingdom. Jesus said to his disciples, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So for 21 days, we're gonna take God at his word. We're gonna join him in the work that he's doing and say, Lord, would you do a work in us and through us at Horizon West Church? Would you pray with me as we close? Father, I thank you for being a God who is ready and willing to help us, God. You don't stand far off. Your your, your ears are attuned to the prayers of your people. And God, I just believe that you wanna do more and you wanna do better and you wanna do greater work than we've ever seen. God, we wanna do our part. We, we, We want to do the work that you called us to, but God, we also know that only you, only you can change hearts. God, we pray. We pray, Lord, that we would Over these next three weeks, God, learn to press into your Holy Spirit. And God, that we see you do something that only you can do. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church podcast. If you are inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.